0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Steve Barber. He's the founder of a very interesting little company, maybe it's not so little, called Upstream Data, Inc. And they do something that I had no idea existed. Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company?
1: Sure, Jim. Thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, my company name is Upstream Data, Inc. We're based in, well, actually, our fab shop is based in Lloydminster, Saskatchewan, just on the south side of the border there but I'm presently located in Calgary. I started Upstream back in 2017. Prior to Upstream, i have been working in oil and gas as a facilities engineer and a production engineer since 2011, so that was since I graduated. So basically my entire career has been in the oil field. And started Upstream, effectively, I won't give you all the full background before it, it's not too relevant, I was just working at oil companies and, and then service companies, designing downhole tools and stuff. But in that period, actually, there was a period of time where I'd quit an oil company to pursue a downhole tool design, which is something I'm very passionate about. I used to work a lot on pumps and, and production tools. And so in that period where I had quit the oil company to start sort of almost like a little design and licensing firm, I had started to learn about Bitcoin. So that was around the 2016 timeframe. And... Really, before that, I'd heard of Bitcoin, but never really, as they say, jumped down the rabbit hole because all I really heard was what they say on the news and they didn't really make it too exciting back in those days. So, but when I had this downtime, like just starting this new business, I started learning about Bitcoin mining. And of course, when you learn a bit about mining, uh, you see that it's very energy intensive. And because mining is, you know, it's an energy consumer of electricity. And it doesn't really matter where it's happening. So it, it struck me as a as a great potential technology to help oil and gas producers deal with their stranded energy problems. So that's like you know flare gas, vented gas, and even just sitting gas wells and, and bottleneck pipelines, all, all those things. So I started the company just a few months later, January first, 2017, because really I was looking around and nobody was using bitcoin mining as like a solution to this waste energy so i couldn't find anyone doing it so i thought well someone's got to try it so that's when i started the company in in 2017 and got our first prototype out there and effectively yeah started a business around selling effectively uh, just bitcoin mines i call them bitcoin mining data centers to the oil and gas industry
0: and and so these things are what typically put right at the wellhead, or where where are they located
1: yeah, exactly. So the cool thing about Bitcoin, as I sort of alluded to, is that it's an energy consumer and it can be located anywhere. It doesn't really need to be located, say, on the grid or on a, off a pipeline. So we, we deploy these natural gas engines, so uh, gensets. So we feed the engine with the, the surplus fuel or the stranded fuel because we don't actually just exclusively mine Bitcoin on vent gas or flare gas, which is certainly our biggest market. But we actually help even stranded gas owners, like guys with mature gas wells. Like we have clients in Pennsylvania, in New York State with these very old, mature, depleted gas plays that are no longer feasible to feed uh, the grid just from the lifting costs, like the operating costs and the compression costs to get it to market. And so we offer this solution, which is basically an engine. We mostly specialize in small motors, like small engines, Uh, not the really big stuff like not the big waukesha style brands more the small automotive style engines small cummins engines so we basically plumb the engine into the source of of usually it's waste gas so usually it's like vented methane or uh flared methane or flared natural gas and we generate electricity right there on site and with the electricity we feed a building which i just refer to as a data center but it's a bitcoin mine so it just feeds the building, which is just computers connected to the internet. And of course, just mining Bitcoin. That's that's what they do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so give me again, sort of the sense of the range of scales, right? You know, how many, uh, what are the kilowatt outputs of these generators? What's the range?
1: Well, the range isn't really limited because you can, whether you're deploying multiple engines or you're deploying just bigger engines, you can go anywhere from our smallest product is a 50 kilowatt. Gen set, so that's specifically the motor and most people listening would be somewhat familiar with this motor it's a it's a v8 chevy 5.7 liter some call it a Vortec engine like it's a truck engine it's an automotive engine so it's an engine that's quite commonly used in oil field just to run well sites especially in canada it's also used all over the u.s in small-scale industrial applications so it's a very it's a very commoditized engine and so that would be the smaller end. We could do smaller than that, but I find that this engine is because of it's it's a commodity from the economic standpoint, like cost per kilowatt. It's a good bang for the buck. And then anywhere above that, so one of those little engines would consume at, at about fifty kilowatt. Would consume up to about four to five hundred cubic meters of gas a day. So in in other terms, that's about fifteen to eighteen thousand cubic feet. So. Usually, uh, this engine's actually a really good choice for these upstream oil wells, which have associated gas, you know, solution gas coming off tanks or just coming off the casing of of the oil well. It's a good solution where today, a lot of these producers, like producing small scale, like we're not talking like big frack pads, we're talking like just smaller conventional oil wells, they can't do anything with this gas, so they end up just venting it to atmosphere in a lot of cases. And of course, the drive behind the venting stuff is with additional, you know, increasing emissions regulations. Uh, these small engines are perfect fit to scale really to any vent volume. So it's, uh, it's one of the only, I would say, commercially scalable Uh, it has its own limitations but it's one of the few commercially scalable solutions for this small scale vent problem
0: and just for our audience who are i guarantee hardly any of them know anything about the uh, oil business an oil well oftentimes will also bring some natural gas up which if it's not close to a if the scale isn't right if it's not close to a a pipeline etc there's no really economically viable way to do anything with the gas so they typically either vent it directly to the atmosphere which is not so good from a greenhouse gases perspective or they'll flare it and burn it off uh, essentially and it's just it's just a waste and so this the idea here is to take something that's a waste and turn it into something arguably and we'll, we'll discuss this later has economic value which is mining a bitcoin is that essentially uh it at the highest level
1: yeah absolutely that's right so i mean we can call it associated gas so pretty much every upstream oil well will have some amount of gas coming out of solution so and it's sort of different with different pools like different formation characteristics but like my background for example like my entire career has been in the canadian heavy oil industry so just by nature of how this oil is produced uh, when i say heavy oil like we, we mean it's physically the density is higher than let's say lighter oils and it's also viscosity is very mm-hmm. thick And it actually produces a lot of sand because it's in an unconsolidated sand formation. So instead of, let's say, these like today, you know, everyone hears about fracking and stuff. Fracking is in a very consolidated, very tight sand formation. So you have to basically pump hydraulic fluid and 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 crack effectively the sandstone to get access to the oil. Whereas in this heavy oil, like to contrast it, this heavy oil industry. Uh, you don't need to do any of that. It's it's more conventional production techniques, just like putting a pump down hole and pumping to surface, like there's no fracking. But because it produces so much sand on surface, like when you pump the oil to the surface of the oil well, you cannot pump it down pipelines and you know have networks of pipelines everywhere. And because you don't have pipelines, you don't have a, you know, you haven't trenched a pipeline, so you have you're not gonna have gas lines either. In most cases, I mean, obviously, it depends on the facility. But in most cases, you're not going to have pipelines. And so when when the gas comes up with the oil, which it does on practically every single oil well on the planet, it's coming out of solution as, it, as, it, as the oil loses pressure as it goes from downhole pressures to uphole pressures. Then you have this associated gas that's released out of solution, almost like opening a can of Coke, right? You shake a can of Coke. As soon as you open it up, all the gas comes out and it foams up. It's actually the same thing with oil. Oil actually gets foamy as well. And so, yeah, you got to deal with that gas. So traditionally, before Bitcoin mining was an option, because we're not the only company now doing this, before Bitcoin mining was an option, the producer would use as much gas as they could on site to fuel their equipment. So it could be fueling motors, fueling burner systems like in tanks or in treaters and that kind of thing. Uh, and then they would try to sell the rest of the gas. So they'd try to, if there was enough gas and it, it was reliable for enough time, they might sell it to the local county. So there's plenty of places that, like in, in Canada, like Medicine Hat is a, is a city built on gas infrastructure. Most counties in Alberta that have oil production are often fed by these upstream wells. But if when you cannot feasibly, like if a project payout doesn't make any sense to install a pipeline, because maybe the gas volumes are very low, then that's where we come in. Like our Bitcoin mining stuff. It doesn't need trench pipelines and it's all portable. So you whatever they invest in our equipment, whether it's an engine, they might need an engine with we build them or they might have their own. Then we bring the data center, like the Bitcoin mine, to the equation. And and so all the capital put into this equipment is now portable and it's it's not sunk like like you would have a sunk cost in a pipeline. So for for that regard, it's extremely um it's extremely cost effective and it's beneficial where they can just move these things around as needed.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, certainly there's going to be some situations where there's no other economic use for it. And then just for my own curiosity, do they just vent the natural gas or do they flare it? Do they burn it as it comes out the well if they don't have any other use for it?
1: Yeah, every every jurisdiction is a little different. So um, there's certain, let's say in the states, like, and I'm not as familiar with some of the regulations in the states as I am in Canada. But there are certain states where you have extremely strict regulations, such as Colorado and California. There's other states like Texas, uh, Oklahoma, where the regulations aren't as strict. In Canada specifically, every single oil and gas facility, which is basically any individual location or oil well, you're allowed to vent. Like, And venting, just so your audience is clear on what that means, it means this excess gas that's produced is just released to atmosphere, just out of a pipe. I actually have a little video on my website about it, like if you look at the field report section. So it's certain vent volumes are allowed. So in say Alberta, where we're based, you're allowed to vent on every single oil well up to 500 cubic meters a day. So that's about 15,000 cubic feet a day of gas at standard conditions. That's allowed. So the regulators won't require you to do anything. You're allowed to do that. You just got to report it. Above that volume, you have to capture it or flare it. And they'll only permit you to flare in cases where you show you like you have no justification to install a pipeline, meaning it's not economically viable so that the payouts, they have a formula actually, and it comes down to net present value. But if you can't show that it's economic to install a pipeline or some alternative conservation method, such as what we offer, then you're allowed to flare it. Those rules will vary on in, at different jurisdictions. Like each state might have their own, and each province has their own in Canada. But that's that's sort of the gist of it there.
0: And then from a greenhouse gas perspective, you sort of have you know pick your poison. You know methane uh, doesn't last as long. Natural gas, being methane mostly, doesn't last as long in, in the atmosphere, but is many times what seventy or eighty times as effective as a greenhouse capture gas. While if you flare it, you convert the uh, methane to CO2, which has less short-term impact but lasts for hundreds to thousands of years in the atmosphere. Is that approximately correct?
1: I'm certainly not an expert on how they measure the equivalency, but I know that for methane, for strict methane, so uh, CH4 molecules... And again, natural gas consists of not just methane. There can be nitrogens, there can be CO2, and there can be heavier hydrocarbons like uh, pentanes, hexanes, etc. And so each one will have a different, call it global warming potential. So that's the measure they use basically. So there is effectively a, an environmental agency. I don't know who is the governing body that that sort of dictates this. But they've agreed that methane, for example, when you look at a yeah you mentioned time scale so on the 100 year time scale which is the industry standard scale methane is approximately 25 times worse on a global warming potential than co2 so basically what that means is if you're venting methane versus combusting methane into its you know constituent products which is water co2 and then different nitrogen compounds nox emissions At least when you compare the 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 mass of methane versus the mass of CO two, its combustion products, methane is considered twenty five times worse. So when it does come to you know, when an oil and gas producer that's operating under these regulations for emissions, if you're venting methane or venting natural gas, you're gonna be penalized significantly more per volume from venting than you will be if you're combusting, such as in a flare or a combustor, or an engine.
0: Okay, got it. So you're basically converting the methane to CO2 plus little nitrous oxides, et cetera. And so uh, equivalently, presumably your gen sets, your generators, they can convert the methane and the hydrocarbons to carbon dioxide. So from an environmental perspective, in the raw sense, they are the equivalent of flaring it. Is that about correct?
1: Yeah, pretty much. In the oil industry right now, like certainly what's being marketed to producers is, okay, you're either going to flare it. Uh, there's another product that's equivalent to a flare, which is called a combustor or an incinerator, they call it. The combustion process is more contained, whereas the problem with flaring, right, is you have all this gas coming from whatever upstream pressure it's at, blowing out the top of a pipe, like out of the flare stack. And flaring is sort of, it's well it's well established, although I've never been able to find like good reliable numbers that are cited, you know, throughout industry, but it's known that your actual combustion efficiency, like how much of that raw gas is, is truly getting combusted at the flare stack varies based on many factors, including just ambient temperature, as well as like how windy it is that day. So you can imagine that on a very windy day, the combustion process at the top of a flare stack isn't as complete as it is on say a very calm day. And there are also different elevations affected, humidity conditions, all kinds of things can affect it. So that, for that reason, one reason why I know locally in Canada, a lot of these combustion companies, these guys selling combustors, so this is a competitive product to flares, they market their products as being a more complete combustion. So you have less fugitive emissions from non-combusted hydrocarbons. So when you compare it, it's it's always a little different. So combustors are considered better, more more environmentally friendly than flares. And engines are on the same in the same spectrum as combustors because engines have a much better complete combustion profile than flares, although I'm not exactly sure to be honest how it compares on NOx emissions. Uh, engines obviously emit NOx, so do flares. It's, NOx is effectively a function of how rich you're burning and how hot the combustion process is happening. So I know in the engine space, like people, uh, you know, designing engines for low knocks, they're they're really looking for a lean burn, which is you know, uh, high oxygen, high air ratio burn, while also minimizing temperatures. So there's there's a bit of nuance there, but absolutely, like if just just for like high level, you know, not looking at the nuance, an engine and a flare are pretty equivalent.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I do understand sort of the scale of these things too. Now that I think about it, you're doing these 50,000 watt packages. Think about it, that's actually the size of the generator I have at my farm, 45,000 watts. It's a Ford Marine V6 actually, and hooked up to burn propane. So very similar kind of rig. So uh, that kind of resonates uh, you know, with me with what we're talking about here. pretty big you know i mean pretty powerful engine and you know produces quite a lot of power
1: yeah i mean and and like i said the engines we specialize in building ourselves because it's because it's more of a commodity when you get into the bigger engines you have to really have a lot of manpower behind it like supporting it so it's something we're growing into but because we're a relatively small company i mean we i only have 18 employees right now we're still focusing on the smaller engines but power generation is a core part of our business so we are growing into the bigger stuff but yeah, like for the audience, I mean, these engines that we build, yeah, they're basically just automotive engines. They're what you see dri- driving around in old Chevy uh, trucks, basically.
0: Now moving downstream, you got some kind of generator. You know, lots of different people that make generators doesn't really matter. I'm sure you you guys have opinions on which ones you like, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter. And then the electricity runs into a Bitcoin mine. Now, I will say, I used to follow carefully what the state of the art was, and I kind of watched the evolution from you know, CPUs to GPUs to the early days of ASICs, et cetera. What's your version of the state of the art in Bitcoin mining that you include in your operations?
1: So when I started, we were already at the ASICs, you know, we've already reached the ASICs side of the uh, technology ramp. So, so yeah, like Jim was saying, like it started with when Bitcoin started, Bitcoin is just software, of course. So when, when mining really took off and became competitive, people went from, the very early people who were just mining on like laptop computers, they started optimizing. They learned how to write some code to optimize like graphics cards, which can really just boost the hash rate. And hash rate just means calculations per second. And then it went from like graphics cards to guys started building specific. I think it went to FPGAs after that. Field programmable gate arrays, that's what they are. I don't really know a lot about that. But then by the time I started my business, they're already into what I call the industrial era of Bitcoin mining, where it had already gotten so competitive and so profitable that people who are in the uh, semiconductor and chip design industry started designing chips you know, right upstream, right at the fab, specifically designed for Bitcoin mining. And so with that, you have these specifically designed chips, these specifically designed circuit boards, what we call hash boards. They all generate a lot of heat uh, because they're they're effectively computing at such high rates and power draw that there's a lot of heat being generated. So now, yeah, since like really, I would say around the 2014 timeframe is when the industrialization era sort of really began in earnest. And that's when Bitmain and and there's a few other companies, Avalon, uh, Samsung builds some of the chips, uh, TSMC fab some of the chips, and that's when it really took off on the industrialization side of things. I mean, if you look at what we do, and and you know, we're effectively deploying these computers in as power dense uh, configurations as possible. We're trying to we're trying to consume as much natural gas as we can for a given footprint, because that's what it's all about. We're trying to deal with this energy. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now, say in the early days of Bitcoin, because in the early days of Bitcoin mining, uh, all they are doing, like a, like we were just saying, is like computer chips and stuff and the power draw just wasn't there. So, really, uh, certainly in the in the mainstream media, Bitcoin has has gotten a lot of heat over the years for its environmental footprint. But there's certain aspects to it, like what we're doing, where you wouldn't even be able to do it without the industrialization and the the high intensity energy consumption.
0: Yep, interesting. Now, again, it's not directly relative to your story, but just sort of for general interest. Are the ASICs continuing to get better and better, or are they essentially plateaued? And is that technology fairly stable at this point?
1: It's becoming more stable. It's still, I I think we're probably at the point where we're around 15 to 20% efficiency improvement every year on average. Maybe a little higher, but it went from like doubling, tripling, or quadrupling efficiency, meaning like how many calculations you can get per watt hour of energy consumed so sort of we look at that like sort of the metric in the space is watts per tera hash so how, how much energy per calculation is being used so it's becoming more and more efficient really every year and every new model so like bitmain bitmain has gone from like the s1s which is one of the first models they're all the way up to the s19s right now uh, the s19s were uh, I'd say I, I don't know off the top of my head maybe 20 to 30 percent more efficient than the the previous model which was an s17 and it's only maybe a year and a half uh, later to market so but we are definitely when you look at the efficiency profile which some people have published of these chips they're slowly plateauing sort of in the in the same way any technology eventually plateaus like you look at the history of engines engines early engines were pretty bad <laughs> and then, you know then In the the first few decades, there's pretty big step change improvements in, in engine efficiency. But now you look at the engine industry, it's had over 100 years of commoditization. While there are actually lots of cool things happening in the engine industry, you know, it's not major step change efficiency improvements. So that's where we're going with the chips, but we're probably still a ways out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, the dimensions keep getting smaller on the chips. They get smarter and how they stack the transistors, you know, in three dimensions now to some degree, et cetera. So there's, there's always room for incremental improvement. Now, that uh, gets me to an interesting economic question. In the compute component, let's not count the generator. It can include the whole capital cost versus the energy. If you had to buy the energy, so let's ignore the fact that you're getting essentially free energy. But if you had to buy the energy in the mining of one coin, let's say, what's the ratio between the cost of the energy and the capital cost of the infrastructure? Yeah, so let's ignore the generator or you're buying gas and running through your generator. It doesn't really matter. So the ratio between the energy cost and the capital cost of the equipment.
1: That's definitely a good uh, good question. Like over time, the cost has been shifting from high capex so early when you look at certainly when you look at capex per unit energy consumed the capex used to be extremely high while the opex was extremely low i mean contrast say cpus versus modern asics like the watt consumption of a a cpu is relatively low whereas modern what we call asics like application specific integrated circuits which are these specifically built Beasts of machines, right, to uh, compute Bitcoin, they, they're they already at like a little over three and a half kilowatt per device. And so when you look at the cost per kilowatt, now, while a CPU back in the day, uh, in, in a sense, is a lot cheaper than what we're seeing with these modern computers, when you divide it into like the ratio of capital to total uh, energy consumption, it was much higher capex in early days than it is today. And so And effectively, uh, the costs of mining Bitcoin are continually shifting towards operating costs, Um, especially as these computers have longer and longer lives. So we talked about the slowing down of how fast these computers are improving. Sort of, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Moore's law, like the idea that efficiency of chips double every two years, or it's around around that time frame. The chips for Bitcoin mining have sort of already reached the forefront of where we are with chips in industry in general. And so uh, all the data is showing that when you invest in Bitcoin mining, most of your life cycle costs now of your mine is is moving into operating costs, which means energy costs, mostly, mostly energy costs. Yeah, I just did a back of the envelope calculation. I don't know if this was right or not, but let's say...
0: Electricity, $0.10 a kilowatt hour, plus or minus, right? 700 hours in a month, that would be $210 a month of energy to run 3 kilowatts. Yeah, $0.30 an hour to run 3 kilowatts. 700 hours, $210 a month. Uh, What's one of those uh, 3-kilowatt ASIC chip packages cost?
1: Their price actually varies with how much revenue they make. But right now, because Bitcoin has been on a bit of a bull run, I just corrected, of course, the other day, like it's dropped maybe forty percent. But price of Bitcoin is somewhere around like thirty-eight thousand dollars U.S. today. So the while we're actually seeing, and I, I know this as a supplier of these computers, we're always buying and selling them for our customers. The prices are going to be coming down again on these things. But just for your, just for easy numbers, like the newest gen hardware, like an Antminer S19, which does you know about that three, say three and a half kilowatt. It's approximately ten thousand dollars U.S. today.
0: Okay, so it's still going to take a long time. It's going to take fifty months to burn as much energy as the cost of the board. If I did my calculations right, so it's the the, board, the capex is still dominant in the economics.
1: Yeah, it sort of actually depends now because um, you're right. Like if you're getting new gen computers, you're going to be a lot higher capex. But my let's say my customers, right? My customers who are oil companies. They're not as actually interested in mining Bitcoin as they are in dealing with their gas in a way that has a better economic payout than their alternatives, which means, you know, a pipeline or even a flare or combustor. So for them, we actually don't. We have very, very few uh, customers who are using these new gen top of the line computers. And the reason, you know, I personally don't advocate for my customers to buy this new gen stuff, this, like the newest age, newest efficiency stuff, because, because of the cost and the cost, it's not just, you know, just capital, you got to output, but you're putting, like, we're putting these things in the middle of nowhere, they're all locked up and they got security systems on them. But, you know, we have stuff that's, uh, we, you know, before your show, we were talking about how remote. Where you live uh, half the year is and a lot of these wells are the same deal like it's it's the closest house or the closest operator at least the person that might be able to check the well is an hour's drive so yeah like our customers use the older gen so uh for example mostly what we're using is minor s9s they're a lot cheaper like a, uh, about a 15th is, is pricey as as that new gen stuff per kilowatt so we can deploy and consume their gas or conserve their gas for much lower capex than using this new gen stuff.
0: Cool. So let me, uh, for our audience, try to describe how I see it. and You can correct me, or I'm inevitably going to be a bit wrong. So there's oil wells, and all oil wells have gas and solution in the oil. In a number of cases, it's not economic to do anything with the gas, like put it into a pipeline and use it in a city or or even put it into a tank, compress it, and ship it away for various reasons of scale and location. And so the alternative would be either to just vent it, put methane into the atmosphere, or to flare it, which is to burn it and turn it into CO2, or use a combustor, which is kind of the equivalent of flaring it. And so that was the status quo ante. Now, uh, along comes you guys, and what you tell these oil companies is you can take that gas, which there's no economic way to send it anywhere, and you can run it through a motor, which turns a generator, which makes electricity, which runs these special ASIC boards designed for mining Bitcoin, and at some known uh, stochastic but known rate, you can turn your waste natural gas into Bitcoins. Is that a fairly decent picture of what's going on here?
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful
0: summary. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, good. Now, of course, then comes the next question. You know, we know that uh, Bitcoins, you just flip a whole bunch of coins. So you're basically generating random numbers until you find one that's magical and then it turns into a Bitcoin, right? What's the uh, ROI on these kinds of structures that, you, that you're delivering to people?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. That, that's like the big question, right? Like yeah, a the That's a question, right? question, absolutely. So... One, I'll just contrast what we do with what normal Bitcoin miners say, normal meaning like not these off-grid miners do. Like China has historically been a dominant player in the Bitcoin mining space. They've been mostly grid based, right? And, and actually, you know, Washington state has been a big into Bitcoin mining for many years now because they too, like China, have a lot of surplus uh, cheap hydro, hydroelectricity. There's, all, there's actually plenty of places in the U.S. that have been great spots for Bitcoin miners to go to. But these are mostly grid-based miners. And so when when you mine, say, on, on the grid, your your major capex is going to be your computers. And then, you know, you got to retrofit a building or you got to build a building to distribute the power from the grid to your computers. But that usually is relatively low cost. The downside of, of being on the grid is that you're going to have higher energy costs than you will if you're off-grid say when you're upstream of the grid so our our customers who are off-grid are upstream of the grid we're the like my my customers the oil companies are in many cases the companies producing the gas for the utility who provides you know the grid power but for us like our products when you look at what if i quoted say you're an oil company and i quoted you on one of our say our small units like something to trial uh, you're going to see a payout range from between one to two years, probably about a year and a half, depending on the day because of the way Bitcoin fluctuates. But you're going to see a payout around that one and a half years strictly on what you have to output in capital to us and what you'll mine in Bitcoin. However, uh, so when you look at that payout, it actually is worse than what a typical grid miner is doing because a grid miner, he's only having to really just buy computers and the computers are usually paying themselves off in around 300 days to a year. Generally, depending on, you know, of course, power costs. But if you have reasonable power costs, then you're going to be in that range. So the big difference, though, you know, I've had a lot of people call me over the years confused as to how our business model works, because the payouts and the capex is a lot higher than, uh, say, a grid miner. But the thing people always forget is we're not actually competing with the grid miners because the reason that oil companies are buying our products isn't actually strictly for the Bitcoin payout. It's because of all the alternative benefits they're getting. So commonly in Canada, like i will say Canada specifically, but commonly in Canada, our clients, our oil companies that we work with, they're in a situation where if they don't do something with the gas, they have to shut in their oil well. And in many cases, just based on how regulations work, it can take a lot of time and a lot of money to get a permit for something like a flare. So when we, when they come to us and we can actually just Either they buy the equipment or maybe they work with us on a lease or some other form of financing. We'll bring the equipment to their site, deal with all the problems without the regulatory headaches. So they're not just benefiting from the revenue that they're earning on Bitcoin but they're actually incremental you know they might be making incremental oil uh than than what they otherwise would have and that's what ends up justifying their projects it's not strictly just the bitcoin mining
0: but even uh, so in an industrial context a one and a half year payback on capital investment is fucking remarkable right you know certainly in, do- in utilities look at 10 year 12 year paybacks on their investments in uh, generating capacity and things of that sort so uh, 1.5 ain't bad, though. Of course, it's probably not as simple as that because as the difficulty ratio rises, that payout tail starts to go down in the future. I would expect. Though, I suppose that's a function of what happens to the price of Bitcoin as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. When you start integrating like the future difficulty profile, like I'm, I'm saying a payout of between that, say, one and a half years and two years. That's sort of integrating that because uh, if difficulty goes up and revenue goes down, well, the computer pricing actually always also goes down. So you know, purchasing at that time, you're actually lower CapEx. This is just what we're seeing historically, but it's also not accounting for Bitcoin appreciation. So if you're actually, that those payouts are based on if customers are selling their Bitcoin the day they get it. Yeah, which is what you should do. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot of our customers- it's what you
0: should do from a, if you're not going to want to be a speculator, if you're essentially just an industrial producer, there's no, no reason to combine those two businesses. If it doesn't make sense from uh, selling it the day you mine it, then you probably shouldn't mine it. Might as well just buy it from somebody else, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're you're right because most of our customers, so what, they do sell their coins. It's not daily; it's monthly. Just because you know it's, it'd be a counting nightmare to do it daily. So we actually buy their bitcoins off them monthly. A lot of our customers just do that with us because we just make it easy for them, so they don't have to. Because uh, again, we're talking oil companies, so they don't they don't want to have to sign up to an exchange and figure it all out themselves. So we just do it for them. But you're right, like most of these guys, especially these blue collar oil guys that aren't investing in this to speculate on Bitcoin, they're, they're selling it pretty frequently. Now, th- now, that being said, actually, we have plenty of customers who are the smaller oil companies, more mom and pop guys that aren't selling their Bitcoin. They're holding on to it because they're investing in it, not just as a solution for their facility, but as uh, they think it's a good long term investment. Because there are certain aspects of mining Bitcoin that are attracted to people as opposed to buying it as well, including the the fact that it's non-KYC. Like, nobody knows you have it. <laughs> yeah, That's interesting. It's a good way to do tax avoidance. Yeah.
0: I, I assume the the bigger oil companies are not playing that
1: game. No, no. I mean, like, I know of many, many, many people in, in the, like, just in my circle, like, in the oil industry, who even went out and retrofitted their own building, like, you know, paid an electrician, just made a Bitcoin mine. Some of these guys, yeah, I mean, they're just seeing it as a, an additional revenue stream and what they end up doing on the tax side, like I have no idea, but they're pro- but they're not like the big oil companies. The big oil companies, are all completely transparent with it. They want full clarity and what's being earned and what's being reported and, and how the tax works. But, you know, it is true, like Jim, like the Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin itself is sort of, it is a great vehicle for generating wealth sort of under the table, like out of view and uh, that is actually what drives a lot of the uh call it the value the market puts in bitcoin
0: yeah i like sometimes you know I'm, I'm somewhat of a skeptic of bitcoin you know, i mean i read satoshi's paper two months after it came out and i slapped myself in the head and say god damn it that's a brilliant idea why didn't i have that idea because it's not that hard i mean to actually implement a bitcoin style blockchain is not rocket science but it was a brilliant idea the way he pulled it all together but when I really look at Bitcoin, it doesn't have that many real use cases. In fact, uh, I like to joke a little bit that the only really optimal case for Bitcoin is for collecting ransoms. <laughs> like the recent it's almost perfect for that, right? Like the recent uh, ransomware attack on the uh, Colonial Pipeline, it's one of the very few things that Bitcoin is the best answer for. And yet we've kind of got caught up in the psychology that Bitcoin is the thing, right? And uh, as long as that collective hallucination holds, the valuation will continue to go up. But uh, frankly, I'm surprised that people are surprised at the recent volatility because it's you know essentially a pure collective hallucination in it, and kind of mathematical grounds ought to have essentially infinite volatility, both up and down. So if you want to play the Bitcoin game, you ought to be ready for some volatility because there ain't no guarantees in that land. Because unlike uh, a nation state security, you know people don't really know this, nation-state currency is also a collective hallucination, as we know. But there is a major pump driving nation-state currencies, which is not true for Bitcoin. And that is that taxes are payable in nation-state currencies. And if you start running the flow diagrams of currency flows in major economies, a big component of the currency in play actually flows through the taxation process. So that provides a pressure gradient, which produces the flow, which allows national currencies to be useful for transactions. None of that's true for Bitcoin. It's all pure collective hallucination around speculation. So uh, uh, that's really, really, really important to consider when you're playing the Bitcoin game. And that's uh, somewhat unlike some of the other coins, like Ethereum, for instance, you know, most of its values and the fact that it has the uh, smart contract scripting language associated with it. And so there's a whole lot of cool things you can do on the Ethereum blockchain that you can't do on Bitcoin. And, and that's you know, Ethereum's what we'd call a second gen coin. And then we have some third generation coins like Cardano, is the one I'm most familiar with, which is much more efficient than ethereum ethereum has gotten to the point where it's ridiculously expensive to do a transaction 5 to 10 dollars per transaction which is fine to do a big one like a business deal or buy real estate or something but you're not going to go to the store and buy a six pack of uh, your favorite IPA with ethereum with a 10 dollar or 5 dollar uh, transaction cost each time you do a transaction so Anyway, these things are, for the longer term, very important to think about with respect to these crypto-based currencies. But in the short term, they look like they might be fun. Who the hell knows, right? And uh, as long as you're selling the coin every month and the CapEx cost relative to the coins coming out I have a one and a half, two-year payback, and if you're a big oil company, your cost of capital is relatively low, why wouldn't you do it? It seems like a pretty brilliant business model.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Like, I mean, I think it's totally fine what you said, because, you know, the value value inherently is subjective. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people look at Bitcoin uh, and just speaking specifically of Bitcoin, because obviously we could talk about the altcoins, alt as we say, like uh, Ethereum and Cardano and et cetera. But I mean, everyone has a different, uh, values it differently. And I never really tried it when I talked to, because I talked to a lot of newbies, like most oil and gas companies, for example, when we're doing pitches, Um, you know they're pretty new to this right like they're actually more and more when i go do a pitch uh, when we're allowed to see people right Uh, or i'm even doing it digitally like in a in a zoom session or whatnot more and more, there's engineers at the table there that know quite a bit about cryptocurrency now. Whereas you know a few years ago it wasn't the case, but you know when when people ask me and and people comment on you know it's a shared hallucination, uh, I don't disagree with that at all because like you said, so is uh, fiat money, so is like the U.S. dollar. But uh, I guess you contrasted it with that there are certain pressures that continue to support the value of these things. But I think one thing people need to remember is that. Fiat money, like uh, say the U.S. dollar, it's not like it's a new tech. Like it's been around. Now it's it's obviously changed form prior to 1971. You know, it was a, it was backed by gold. You could redeem your fiat and gold. And then you know, even central banking and how how the dollar was even issued changed back in the early 20th century. But even before that, like gold being the basis of money has been uh, the truth for quite a long time. And so when you compare something new like Bitcoin and its volatility to anything we're used to, like uh, fiat money, government money, it's not exactly fair because the government money has a long, long history and a precedent on the market. So that's that's partially why it is so stable and so liquid. People have the precedent for it. One thing every Bitcoiner, like myself, I'm a a pretty hardcore Bitcoiner. We still use this money, this this old money, whereas most people don't use Bitcoin. Like if you, you know, there's only a small percentage of people even using this new tech. So it's very much different. So I I usually just say, you know, subjectively, like Jim, you might not doesn't sound like you're a huge fan of Bitcoin in terms of maybe you're a fan, but like you talked about Ethereum and Cardano being like newer gens and stuff and maybe more useful. And I think that's fair, like if that if that's the because that's a personal thing, like you find it more useful. I personally, when people ask me is Bitcoin like you know, when they talk about these things, like what people in the media say, like it's oh, it's gonna be obsolete, it's gonna be banned, whatnot. There's so many different, you know, what we call FUD or arguments against Bitcoin. But for me, like it's the reason I continue to invest in it, aside from the fact that obviously I have a bias with my company, which is which is building these Bitcoin rigs. One thing Bitcoin has that none of these other coins have, like these other, call it second gen or, or altcoins, is it has this predictability. Bitcoin has a culture of not changing anything for political reasons. And that's the, that's the big difference between Bitcoin and, say, Ethereum. I'll just contrast it with Ethereum, which is, you know, call it a competitor of Bitcoin or call it new gen Bitcoin, whatever you want. Ethereum has a precedent of constantly changing its structure, like its software. Based on political pressure, and I actually wrote a pretty long piece a year or two ago on what Bitcoin's all about, and and really it's sort of it's meant to be competitive to state issued money that is top down issued currency, where Bitcoin is a very much bottom up currency. And I invest in Bitcoin personally, and I value it personally because of its predictable aspects. The fact that I know that no charismatic politician or leader is going to just sprout out of nowhere and manipulate its monetary basis, such as like its supply cap, how much is issued. The the community has shown resilience against, and there's many such cases uh, showing this, of uh, where the Bitcoin community has resisted what I'll refer to as political attack. And you can contrast that with, say, central banking, who like these guys you look at look at uh, central banking interest rates, you know the lending rate, the prime rates for banks they, it's flip-flopping every other year. it's like because they don't they're trying to adjust it. I'm, I'm sure it's with best intent to accommodate market conditions, but they're so bad at predicting market conditions that they're having to adjust interest rates all the time and, and, and how much money they're printing because they really don't know what they're doing and uh, there's that unpredictability of central banking, that, that's what drives people to Bitcoin. That's the whole point.
0: Yeah, I think I like that point. And I, I'll actually amplify a little bit, you know, why Bitcoin is more resistant to politics than these other projects. One is that it's the simplest, right? Uh, things like Ethereum and Cardano and Ocean Protocol, which I've been involved with a little bit, and uh, the Singularity Net AGI token, they have rather complicated semantics, And sometimes those semantics aren't quite right, or they allow themselves to be subject to certain kinds of unanticipated hacks, and then they have to have some political response. Uh, One of the coins uh, that I know about had to do a fork, basically, to undo a hack, you know, and those kinds of things are, as you say, not allowed on Bitcoin, and uh, they're much less necessary because Bitcoin is very, very simple. I mean, Bitcoin was designed to basically emulate gold. I would kind of dispute a little bit that Bitcoin is the equivalent of money. I mean, it's really more the equivalent of gold. And, uh, and we're now seeing with distributed finance, some very interesting things emerging where Bitcoin is underlying other kinds of things, which makes a lot of sense because Bitcoin itself is kind of awkward to use to buy anything, but it's not bad to use for bulk moves of fairly you know, substantial $10,000 or up amounts of capital in and out of various financial instruments through distributed finance. So I think that's going to be quite interesting for the future of uh, Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. So that's the good news on Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's many ways to layer stuff on top of Bitcoin. Like right now, I mean, the two biggest things that sometimes are overlooked, like, uh, well, people obviously, you know, if you've been paying attention, you've, you've heard of these call it decentralized layers, like lightning network, but they're relatively low adoption and, and they have, In my opinion, there'll be reasons why they will stay relatively low adoption for quite some time, but there's other uh, call it more trusted layers like custodial layers, such as just online exchanges. Like people, there are certain exchanges you can you can buy and sell Bitcoin. Use use these like uh, stable coins. You're never really pulling your Bitcoin off the exchange, so you're trusting the, the custodian. So these custodial models will allow people to use Bitcoin without ever having to take possession of it now that that in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing Um, but it is a way to sort of have a payments layer or even a smart contract layer on top of bitcoin because there's other protocols like semi-trusted protocols like uh, liquid network but even mining like you look at mining right now most people myself included like my business and all my customers we don't mine bitcoin directly you know using full nodes which is the the normal like the the base way of mining. We're we're trusting a pool. We're trusting a mining pool, which is sort of acting like, well, is a custodian and is similar to like an online exchange in that we don't actually own the Bitcoin until they send us the Bitcoin. But by trusting that custodian, it gets rid of all the volatility of when a miner will actually find a block and be rewarded Bitcoin. So it's always a lot of nuance uh when comparing and unfortunately like when you see what we call a certain fud about bitcoin on uh certainly on the mainstream they're not really addressing this nuance because bitcoin you're right you're not going to go use bitcoin for a small payment just because you know the network fee to move bitcoin is is relatively high but uh for the most part that's not really what i think most of the market is interested in bitcoin for it's not these small transactions it's more these bigger transactions and and actually just having a more predictable monetary asset, like something that cannot be inflated away, which is right now, I think, one of the biggest concerns going on in today's society. We're seeing that inflation is on the rise predictably, right, as based on all the money they're printing. And that's that's yep, what drives indeed. a lot of people to Bitcoin is, is you can't do that with Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, though I would, and again, this is another one of my somewhat religious points, is that like gold, Bitcoin is kind of sterile. Though I will confess that the, the development of distributed finance has made Bitcoin somewhat less sterile, and that can be used to, you know, as a stake versus a loans, and that loan can be used for productive purposes. But like putting your money in Bitcoin in a pure sense is very much like putting your money in your mattress. It is not lent out to businesses for productive purposes. And so it's very understandable, particularly in the face of coming inflation, that you would stick your money in Bitcoin. You know, I try to remind people that's not the only alternative. Most people who have money don't keep it in cash. You know, they they invest it in productive assets. So if you owned an apartment building, your own oil well, you own farmland, those are assets that will keep their value even across inflation. In fact, may actually outperform other asset classes that are more exposed to fluctuations in interest rates, et cetera. So realize that things like Bitcoin or gold are somewhat antisocial in that they are not Contributing our savings. Our savings are essentially work we have done, which we did not consume. It's really quite simple. That's what your savings are. And so if you put your savings into, let's say, starting a company or uh, lending it to somebody who's starting a company or buy stock in an early stage company or building a house for resale, you're actually creating value with what you did not consume. But if you park it in Bitcoin or gold, nothing is happening. It's sterile, it's been pulled out of the productive economy. So I think that is, uh, even though it may make sense in the individual case, when everybody does it, it may have some unfortunate side effects for the unfolding of our society.
1: Yeah, it's hard for me to comment on that. I mean, I I think that Bitcoin just gives people a choice to save as an alternative saving vehicle. Now, I, I never think that offering more choice will end up being a detriment to society, though there have been people that have speculated that, you know, because Bitcoin is effectively a deflationary asset, meaning like over time, there's actually less and less Bitcoin available on the market. And that's because it's capped and then people lose their Bitcoins and stuff. So it's effectively uh, deflationary. I, I actually think this is actually a great thing for society because I mean, when you look at, you know, I'm always contrasting Bitcoin and, and people like me online, you know, we're, we're sort of like Bitcoin salesmen, but I'm always contrasting Bitcoin with, you know, legacy systems. People are naturally pretty good at saving money, like, you know, saving, like putting money in your piggy bank, like even children can do that, right? Even toddlers can be taught, okay, save your pennies, put them in this piggy bank. Good things will happen later. You're going to open up your piggy bank and get something you need get some candies, like whatever the case. So it's a very natural, like human concept to save, like to hoard. And contrast that with our current system which punishes savers. Like if you're without, say, gold uh, or Bitcoin or any of these, call it sound money assets, you know, anyone holding fiat money, like US dollars under their mattress, well, all the data is showing you that your purchasing power is just uh, inflating away. It's being diluted. Yeah, you should never do that. That was my you point. Should, yeah, that, absolutely never do that.
0: Yeah, putting your money in the mattress is something you should never, frankly, leave your money in a checking account, something you should ever do. But you know, I point out the alternative, which is to take that money and invest it into productive assets, which are, are not subject to inflation. In fact, will actually outperform financial assets, generally
1: speaking. Yeah. So the point I wanted to make on that, like the problem while, while you're, you're absolutely right. And that's what I do as well. Like with the Bitcoin, my company earns, we as, as strategic points reinvest in more equipment and to expand our business. But I just wanted to say that when you think of the current economy, where the only way to get ahead on this fiat economy is to put out, you know, most of your cash, not save it in the bank account, but put it into stocks, put it into buying shares in companies, putting it into real estate, like whatever, this is all much a much higher degree of complexity than just simply saving the money is. So I think that's why Bitcoin is so powerful is because, you know, for whatever reasons, it historically has appreciated in value so much that everyone who has chosen to save it in Bitcoin over any extended period of time has actually, in many cases, probably most cases, has outperformed investing it on the market. Now, I don't think that'll always be the case. Like I think as Bitcoin continues to grow and be adopted, eventually market rates of return for investments will be very competitive with Bitcoin. But I think it's got a long way to go. I think Bitcoin's gonna be a pretty good investment for quite some time.
0: Cool. Uh, Let's uh, wrap up with the last thing. In fact, uh, I kind of invited Steve to come on the show based on a little minor argument we had on Twitter about whether what he was doing was environmentally good or bad, or neutral. And now that I've learned a little bit more, I would, I'll would i retract the fact that I thought it was bad, because the alternative is not so good either, right? Which is, you know, worst case, venting and the next best, flaring or combusting. So from that perspective, it's probably not particularly environmentally bad versus the alternative. Though I suppose you would have to look at what are the embedded greenhouse gas costs in building the gensets and the ASICs. And that would be that would be the potentially incremental bad environmental aspects, but uh, that's relatively modest on the scale of things. So I'll retract my complaint about it being an environmentally bad idea, even if I do think that in general, Bitcoin is not worth the environmental cost. In this particular case, because the gas would be vented anyway, one point, either vented or flared, I think the environmental impact is actually not too bad. Uh, I'll retract my complaint about that from Twitter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, this obviously the environmental footprint of Bitcoin and of anything really is is a hot topic these days. I'm personally like, while my business focuses on because the producer has a liability associated with venting or flaring because you know there's a regulatory requirement that they're not allowed to do it, so they you know they're losing oil production or something like because of it. So because you know we we help them there but we actually like i have no problem from a moral or ethical uh, perspective helping even producers that are uh say selling gas somewhere else or maybe stranded gas wells we have several clients that have sitting gas wells that aren't doing anything so they're not currently producing not currently say emitting carbon but we are helping them get set up to mine bitcoin fundamentally, like I look at it as, uh, you know, carbon is certainly one part of the equation, but benefiting society by allowing them to produce more economic value, whether or not you agree that Bitcoin and not you necessarily, but whether or not the listener agrees that Bitcoin mining is useful or not, or Bitcoin is useful or not. The fact is, it's useful to people that that are paying for it for whatever reason whether they're using it as a hedge against inflation maybe they're just using it to evade taxes like I don't really know but for whatever reason people are using it they're finding value in it and so I don't see any any problem with helping people mine bitcoin on any in any circumstance I think we've sort of as a society have somewhat lost the narrative on what it is we should be investing in I mean like look at coal the coal industry has been demonized for many years and in North America, especially in the States and and Canada, coal-fired electricity has been, due to regulations, has been forced to ramp down. Meanwhile, over in China, they're ramping up coal enormously. And guess where most solar panels and wind turbines are manufactured? It's in China, and it's off this cheap coal that they're producing. I think people need to remember that you know, I say this uh, to people when I'm when I'm arguing with them about this renewable stuff. If you walk around your house and look at all your possessions, almost every single thing you own is built like directly from fossil fuels or indirectly from fossil fuels. And to just demonize the whole thing, like natural gas production is bad because it has emissions, or coal is bad because it has emissions. I think there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And a lot of people are just, for better or for worse, I think for worse, disregarding that and disregarding the economic utility that is providing humanity. So I I find um, the the, the funny thing about Bitcoin is because it's so transparent, like you can look on your own Bitcoin node exactly what the hash rate is and you can apply from the hash rate what the energy consumption is. Yeah, people get caught up on Bitcoin's energy usage. But what's not transparent is, okay, so Bitcoin, for example, is competing directly against the central banking system. And what's not transparent is how much emissions, if you want to use emissions, which I'm not a fan of, I don't consider it that legitimate of a a metric for resource consumption. But if you look at uh, even just central banking and not including many of the other banking and financial layers built on top of it, what's the emissions of central banking? It's very obscure. And I think you could uh, try to put some constraints and assumptions on it, and you'd, you would see that it's actually quite a bit worse than Bitcoin mining is and, and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is as a new form of settlement layer. So I don't know, there's a, lot of un, there's a lot to unpack on the environmental side of things, but I would like to see people talk and think more about the economic value it's providing to humanity.
0: Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I think, Steve, this has been uh, really an interesting and fascinating exploration of uh, an interesting economic niche I had no idea existed. And I think you've done a wonderful job of explaining what you do and why it makes sense, uh, at least within the context of monetary economics. And uh, yeah, this has really been fascinating. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, Jim, thanks a lot for having me. I mean, it's been a an enjoyable conversation so any any time or offline if anyone needs to reach me or just wants more information i mean half my life is educating the public on this stuff so you can reach me uh on twitter at sgbarber or through my website upstreamdata.ca
0: and as usual those will be available on our episode page at jimrodshow.com production services and audio editing by jared janes consulting Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.